Before we read the scripture passage this morning, let us turn to God and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, send to us your Holy Spirit as we read now your holy word. Give us understanding and insight and wisdom. Guide us to all truth. For we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the gospel according to John, chapter 15, verse 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause." But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you, to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the God, only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let me begin by saying what a strange and surreal moment we have found ourselves in this morning. I would have never guessed even two weeks ago that I would be standing in a mostly empty sanctuary preaching to a congregation worshiping in their homes on the fourth Sunday of Lent. And it appears that this is our reality for the foreseeable future. But praise be to God, there are no reports of COVID-19 within our congregation, even as it has now come into our larger community. And praise be to God that even as we submit ourselves to and obey the recommendation of those who are in positions of authority over us to limit our gathering together in the flesh, we have the capability to reach you in your homes with the word of God. So let us be exceedingly grateful to God this day for his protection and his provision. 
He is indeed our good shepherd. I also want to take an opportunity to let you know that we stand ready to serve you, any of you, all of you, in any way that we can. If you need groceries, meals, medicine, or anything at all, please let us know. We even have a nice stock of toilet paper here at the church. I checked myself. If you need some, don't hesitate to call. If I am well, I will personally deliver it to you. Please spread the word among our covenant community and continue to care for one another as I have heard you are doing so well. But certainly the pain of not being able to physically gather on the Lord's day is palpable. Pastor John and I have received messages from many of you lamenting this situation of being unable to gather together, particularly for worship. We are striving to make worship as normal as possible for you, even as we worship remotely. We give thanks to God for the gift of his spirit who binds us all together, even as we are separated by physical distance. And yet there is no substitute for being physically gathered together on the Lord's day. So perhaps this morning, perhaps this morning we can get a taste albeit a very small one, of the experience of Christians in other countries, countries that are openly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should be reminded this day that not all Christians have the privilege of freely worshiping and gathering with fellow believers for fellowship and for study without the threat of persecution. I hope that as we mourn our inability to gather in the flesh this morning, that the reality that faces other Christians is not lost on us. I hope that our reality helps us to understand, to some degree, the pain that is the normal experience of other Christians. And I hope that we are drawn to pray for them because of this. Even as we pray for ourselves, that God would deliver us from this pandemic to worship again together in the near future. And as we return this morning to Jesus' school of discipleship in this passage from John 15 and 16, we find that our aching for the persecuted church in our current cultural moment have some direct connections that are drawn out by the focus of this passage, which is the world's response to the followers of Jesus. And we can immediately notice in this passage the paradoxical nature of being a disciple of Jesus, which comes with the blessedness of being chosen by him, belonging to him, being privileged to be called his friend, receiving the benefits of being a child of God, and yet comes with persecution as a result of being set apart from the world. And Jesus does not mince words here. The world loves its own but hates those who do not go along with its deeply held sinful interests. And so Jesus speaks bluntly and clearly to his disciples, warning them of the opposition they will face. As the Gospel of Matthew records, Jesus has already told his disciples, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And now he warns them of this again in the moments before his own suffering and death. 
But these candid truths spoken by Jesus here should not really come entirely as a surprise for those who've been reading through John's gospel. I hope you have. Since the world's opposition to Jesus is a prominent theme that runs throughout this gospel account. From the very beginning of John's gospel, we are told the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And again, a few chapters later, we come to these familiar words. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We know these verses, but do we know what follows? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works be exposed. John 3 gives witness to God's deep love for the world, which is the reason why God sent his son into the world, even as it describes the reality of the world's opposition to his self-revelation in Jesus Christ. So even as there are those who are drawn to Jesus throughout the gospel account, who are attracted to him because they recognize him to be from God, whose affections are stirred by his mighty deeds, whose attention is captured by his teachings, there are yet others who are repelled by him, who in the pride of their sinful nature refuse to bow a knee to Jesus or acknowledge him as Lord. And if we read through the whole of John's gospel, we see very clearly this clash between Jesus and all who persist in their rebellion against God. It happens again and again. So we have Jesus telling people that they are children of the devil. You are of your father the devil, Jesus says, and your will is to do your father's desires. He goes on to tell this crowd that the devil is a murderer and a liar, implying that They are too. And these words will be vindicated as he hangs on the cross. This hostility toward Jesus has grown and grown throughout the course of the gospel, and it has now, near the end of John's gospel, reached a point at which Jesus' death is inevitable. And so as we approach this passage, we need to first and foremost understand it within the larger context of John's gospel. And when we place it within the larger context, we come to see that the world's response to Jesus is not a surprise to God, nor does it somehow trump God's will. It's not outside God's sovereign control, nor is it in opposition to his plan for salvation. And we might not immediately understand how any of that makes sense, but we should seek to recognize here That in Jesus Christ, in his presence among us, humanity is confronted by God in the very depth of its sin. 
You see, at the very heart of our sin is an active rebellion against God himself. Humanity wants to set itself up as its own God. But in Jesus Christ, humanity is faced with God himself. Therefore, humanity's defiance against God is provoked and ultimately manifests itself in the killing of God's own son. Simply put, Sin does not get any deeper than being faced with God and attempting to destroy him. But it is at this very point that the saving, outstretched arm of God reaches. So Jesus affirms here in John 15 that if he had not come to those who oppose him, they would not be guilty of sin. Which doesn't mean that they hadn't sinned. It means that until he appeared among them, they had yet been confronted with the supreme revelation of God. But when he appeared, they responded by committing the deepest sin, rejection of him who is the image of the invisible God, even to the point of having him executed without true cause. But it's through this very act of submitting himself to death that salvation is made available. Therefore, the opposition that Jesus faces is for the sake of redeeming a people of God's choosing. For God's elect, Jesus gives himself up to death that his people might be freed from the powers of darkness. And we shouldn't see the world's response to Jesus then as a failure on God's part to accomplish his salvific work, but rather as a means by which his work is accomplished. We were foretold in Genesis 3 that this is how God has willed to to win the war that Satan has waged against God's kingdom since the beginning of creation. The serpent will bruise the heel, but the serpent's head will be crushed in the process. So we should understand this passage from the perspective of the cosmic warfare that's been raging since Adam and Eve first sinned and plunged the world into darkness. Secondly, we need to understand this passage in the context of the immediately preceding verses about abiding in Christ as branches of the vine. When we, as disciples of Jesus, abide in him and bear spiritual fruit, we are not only affirming that we belong to the Lord, but we are simultaneously bearing witness to the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus, who lives within us by the Holy Spirit. And as witnesses to Jesus, we are the ones through whom God has... ordained to continue to confront the world with his self-revelation in Jesus Christ as the means by which God continues to seek and save the lost. But do you see where this is going? As we give witness to Jesus, as he in his resurrected power is lifted up in and through our lives, the reality is that our witness will provoke a response in the world. And it's this response to which Jesus speaks here in John 15 and 16. So hopefully now that we have a sense of the context of this passage, we can understand more fully this warning given to his disciples and to all who will follow after Jesus until he comes again and finally and totally crushes Satan and eternally extinguishes the powers of darkness. As we have perhaps heard it said, 
To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And this is undoubtedly Jesus' goal here. We want to take heed of this warning this morning that we will face opposition as his people. And so be forearmed. And with this in mind, there are three very important lessons that Jesus teaches us here that I want to highlight this morning. So first, and this might seem exceedingly obvious, but bear with me. Jesus wants us to understand the root cause of the opposition we face. The cause of the world's hatred against us is Jesus himself. The cause for the world's hatred against us is Jesus himself. What this means is that when people oppose us, they aren't, first and foremost, opposing our lifestyle preferences or our social positions or our political stances because they think that we hold strange beliefs. Nor is it a matter of education. They aren't simply reacting negatively because people oppose what they do not understand. They are responding to and rejecting Jesus. We need to grasp that the world's hatred at its core is a spiritual issue. People have a visceral reaction to Jesus because of their fallen nature. We live in a world where even though the decisive victory has been won over the devil, his ultimate destruction has been determined, he continues to try to exercise dominion over the world. And the world continues to be enslaved by the powers of darkness. And to those who are unregenerate, Jesus is a virus that needs to be destroyed. Sort of like Pastor John encouraged last week, spread the infection of the gospel. That's our calling. Well, our passage this morning is telling us that many who we encounter with the gospel will resist it. In their fallen, sinful state, the gospel will be met with the same resistance as a virus is met with by a healthy immune system. This is our sinful state's natural response to the gospel. Destroy it. Destroy it so we can continue to live unto ourselves as our own gods. And since Jesus is opposed as a virus, all of us who belong to him and give witness to him will be treated in the same manner. We are bearers of the virus. At the very least, we should be quarantined, but perhaps even destroyed. Put in words that match the metaphor of John 15, the opposition the vine experiences will be felt by the branches as well. Jesus doesn't want us to miss this. People hate him because ultimately they hate God the Father and his rule over their lives. And if they hate Jesus because they hate God the Father, they will likewise hate us who give witness to him who reveals the Father. We see this pretty clearly in the Acts of the Apostles. After the mass conversion that happens on Pentecost, we find the church filled with the Holy Spirit bearing good fruit. They're worshiping and praying and fellowshipping with one another. They're sharing their meals together in worldly possessions. They're caring for one another and for the poor. And as they go out and proclaim the good news, miraculous things are happening. People are being healed of disease. Now, one would think that the world would be drawn to the beauty and power of the gospel. But, 
but many still rage against the church. Even as the redeemed community is showing forth this love and kindness and generosity, and God's goodness and grace is displayed. We see just a few chapters into Act, the followers of Jesus being arrested and beaten. And then by chapter 6, Stephen is stoned to death. And this brings us to our second lesson in this passage. We mustn't judge our successes and failures based on the world's response. We mustn't judge our successes and failures based on the world's response. Although it might seem readily apparent that to say that Jesus is the root cause of the world's hatred towards us, here is the reality. We don't always realize the implications of this truth. Believing that it is our task to seek and save the lost, we are tempted to try to appeal to the world to satiate the world's hatred toward us. We wonder, how will we get people to come to church and begin following Jesus and worshiping God if we are hated? And so we determine the best way is to make the gospel attractive by making ourselves seeker-sensitive. We soften our message. We make worship and our lifestyles look less alien and more like the world. We don't discuss, discuss sin and God's judgment against it. We only talk about God's love and mercy. We seek to present ourselves as those who accept everyone as they are. In these ways, we believe that we are drawing people to God. And in fact, we might be drawing crowds. But notice here in the text that Jesus does not tell his disciples to try not to be hated by the world. Nor does he tell them that appealing to the world is vital to their mission. No, quite the contrary. Jesus is telling them that if they are doing what they are called to do, they will be met with resistance. In fact, the more they look like him, the more good fruit they, they bear, the more faithful their witness, the more they will be despised and rejected. Or stated conversely, if you are loved by the world, it might not be that you are doing something right. Rather, it might be that you are doing something very, very wrong. We are not called to appeal to the world here in this text. Love and pray for our enemies, yes. Return kindness for persecution, yes. But appeal to the world, no. Our calling is simple. We're called to bear good fruit and to give faithful witness. God will do the rest. The power doesn't lie in us. It lies in the gospel. As we give faithful witness to it and proclaim it boldly, God draws people out of their sin to himself. Those who oppose our witness and proclamation are for God to deal with. Dearly beloved, we need to understand the blessing of this word. It isn't up to us. The pressure is off to be successful, to succeed in the world's eyes. Because God is faithful and good. We don't have to view opposition to our evangelism as failure. It isn't. It is an expected response from a world that is in rebellion against God. So we don't have to try harder to be more creative or more attractive to the world. That isn't to say that the gospel is opposed to effort. We should be seeking to earnestly 
evangelize. But when our efforts are met with opposition or indifference, we shouldn't be discouraged or surprised. Nor should we be overly concerned with pleasing others. What a wonderful word in our modern context. We live in an age that is hypersensitive, in which everyone is talking about political correctness and trying not to offend others. And we're even seeing it right now with the coronavirus. In the midst of all of the important information going out about how the virus is progressing and the precautions we should be taking to flatten the curve, there is a constant distraction of those offended by the virus being called the China virus, even though it is simply fact of where the virus originated. And while many of us probably disregard society's insistence for political correctness, I think sometimes perhaps many of us wrestle with a feeling that we are failures as Christians because sometimes we cause offense as we seek to follow Jesus. We feel like perhaps it's something we are doing wrong. We think to ourselves, shouldn't I be well thought of by others? If I am light and salt, shouldn't that elicit at least some kind of positive response from others? So maybe I have failed to articulate the gospel well. Maybe I have failed to love and serve well. Maybe I wasn't gracious enough or winsome enough. Here is a word of assurance. A servant is not greater than his master. Friends, you will never be more gracious than Jesus. You will never be more winsome than Jesus. You will never be a better evangelist than Jesus. This is the reality. Jesus tells us, people rejected me. They will reject your witness to me as well. It's okay. You are not a failure. We need to trust that the Lord is using us for his purpose of bringing those he has called to himself. He is using us as he chooses for the sake of his own glory. Now, this doesn't mean that we should seek to cause offense, but we also shouldn't avoid actions that might cause offense. Scripture instructs us to concern ourselves with being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ rather than concerning ourselves with the opinions of men. In fact, in Luke 6, just before Jesus instructs us to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us, he says this, Woe to you when people speak well of you. If everyone thinks well of you, perhaps you've concerned yourself with pleasing men in a way that disqualifies you from following Jesus. Paul says this to the Galatians, For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, we might wonder, but we don't really experience open hostility here in Monroe, Louisiana. How does this make sense? Does that mean that we're doing something wrong since Jesus tells us that his church should expect opposition? Not exactly. Well then, does that mean that the world's lack of hostility is revealing that we live in a Christian culture fully accepting the gospel and submitting itself to Jesus' lordship? Not exactly. 
I think that we should consider what our realistic expectation should be for the response of our a response of the world to our witness. And to help us think about this, allow me to flip the infection metaphor that Pastor John gave us last week on its head. We aren't really in spreading infection when we spread the gospel, are we? We're spreading the cure to sin sickness. Amen. We're providing the remedy to the world's terminal illness. We're spreading health and life. The problem is, here in the South, people have ready access to the cure. And many have been dabbling with this medicine, but they haven't been taking it in a way that has been recommended by the great physician. Many have been taking it sporadically and not in the proper dosage. And by doing so, they're developing within themselves a deep resistance, but not to the illness. This is what happens when we take medicines like antibiotics improperly. They become entirely ineffective as the disease develops a resistance against them, even as we think we're being healed. Cultural Christianity, with its careless interpretation and application of Scripture, its bad doctrine, and its lackadaisical discipleship, has created in many a resistance to receiving the true gospel and the health it provides. Therefore, we can expect that people in our current cultural context won't necessarily be openly hostile to Christianity. In fact, they believe themselves to be spiritually healthy. This is a deep, deep deception. And so perhaps we should anticipate a corresponding response. If you ex- extend an invitation to a family member or friend or coworker to join you for worship or a Bible study because you know this individual is a Christian in name only, because he has his name on the roll of a church which he never attends, then you might expect a friendly refusal. Don't be discouraged. Pray and continue to invite the person to a life of true discipleship. You might not experience open hostility, but you might have mocking questions raised about how you live and why you feel you need to go to such devotional extremes. Do not be discouraged. Pray that God would use you to shine a light of clarity and bring about a conviction of sin. In other words, expect a much more subtle opposition. But don't be fooled. People around you will still be rejecting Jesus to whom you are giving witness. So this gets us to our third and final lesson. The reality that that is the reality that it is Jesus who is truly being rejected when we are met with indifference or even open opposition to the gospel and our Christian witness should change our posture. It should change our posture. Jesus is pointed in his words. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Should we meet opposition with fear, the feeling of defeat or complaining? Should we believe that Jesus Christ has abandoned us if the world comes against us? This passage gives a very firm no to these questions. Jesus tells us that these things will happen. He tells us to remember his words when it does happen, that we can remember that all things happen by God's good providence. As John Calvin wrote, without certainty about God's 
Providence life would be unbearable. This is a good word for us today. Jesus says these things that we won't be surprised. Rather, we can meet opposition with full faith, without panic and without intimidation. Jesus wants us to understand the opposition we face is small compared to God's kingdom. It should be pitied as those who don't know the Father and who will face judgment if they do not repent of their sin. And this was Stephen's response, right? He was emboldened by those who opposed him and prayed for God to forgive them even as they stoned him to death. And the result was that Saul of Tarsus was brought to the Lord. Jesus tells us this in Luke 6. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the count of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. What should be our response to opposition? Rejoicing. Not because we are suffering, but because the cause, because of the cause of our suffering. The world has seen in us something so much like Jesus that it has opposed us on account of him and thus affirmed our identity as his possession. Therefore, I hope that we wouldn't avoid giving faithful witness to Jesus Christ, but all the more, even in this moment when the frailty of life is being displayed on a global scale, let's not miss this opportunity to speak boldly about our great physician who heals all of our diseases and forgives all of our iniquities. Praise be to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel, which encourages us, which speaks words of comfort to us. Lord, help us be comforted by this word today, to comforted, be comforted by your presence with us in the power of your spirit. Embolden us to go forth and to give faithful witness to Jesus Christ, the trusting, Lord, that your word will not return to you void. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. I invite you to now stand up. And to affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 